1: podcast for the biggest storylines, results, and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Wednesday, March 30th. Some juicy storylines have emerged down the home stretch of the 2022 Miami Open. And of course, it's been a really fun three, four weeks of action during this sunshine swing. I think we can all say after a two season hiatus, this sunshine swing has delivered and ultimately that's all we can ask for as tennis fans. Now, with that said, we are satisfied we are I would say we are happy with how the action has unfolded. We are not yet satisfied. There is still plenty of things we want to see unfold over the next few days. Plenty of storylines for us to monitor and of course discuss here on today's show. And when you're going to break down the action happening at a 1000 level event, talk about not only all the men's storylines, all the women's storylines. Try to hit just about every player remaining in the draw. You better have a good guest to help you do that. I have that joining me on today. Today's show, and again, he's a returning champion here on our Crack Rackets podcast, and at this point, essentially a co-host of the Mini Break podcast, and we may have some fun news on that front for all of you listeners moving forward. That is what we call in-show business a tease, but of course, joining me on today's show to break down what to expect over the final few days of action in Miami is a man you know best as an editorial producer for AllThingsTennis.com, Tennis Channel. He is our friend, David Kane. David, welcome back. back to the show. How are you doing today? It's
2: a pleasure having you on my podcast, Alex. (laughs) I have to say for those who can't watch us record Alex does do the intro in front of me and I do lip sync welcome to the mini break each and every time. And I give you a tremendous amount of credit for never breaking because I make a very crazy face when I'm lip syncing you.
1: You know, I'm very good at zoning in and out and distracting myself and ignoring what the guest is doing far (laughs) frequently. I do that far too frequently. Uh, Perhaps that's what happens when I'm in my intro mode. And honestly, it's robotic at this point. Sometimes I find myself doing a cadence more than saying words. And I'm like, this is the mini break cadence. This is the great show podcast cadence. This is the Cracked Interviews cadence. And the amount of times I screw up which one I'm doing when I record the intro or outros beforehand, a lot of cuts. lot. That's probably where the most editing occurs. It probably takes me I don't want to admit. It probably takes me 20 minutes to record a four-minute intro outro. So shout out to me. As always, it's a good place to start today's show. But uh, of course, I'm not the center of attention, David. We're on your show here. So with that in mind, I know we're recording this 2.49 p.m. Eastern time here on Wednesday. You were on the Paula Bedosa beat. You invented Notorious PBG's beat, obviously. And, you know, today, unfortunately, she had to withdraw from her match against Jess Pegula. And, you know, that is not the storyline that we are going to be discussing primarily here on today's show but I do want to ask you at the start you know what have you been up to at tennis.com what can listeners what should listeners go check out
2: well, i did just recap the pagula bedosa yeah. match there wasn't a ton of it to recap as we discussed before we went online but for what i did see and the way that pagula has played although she hasn't had to play a lot of tennis this week to make the semifinals she's fresh off of a 6-0 retirement from Helena kalina in the fourth round and then gets a 4-1 retirement from bedosa in the quarters to make her second wta 1000 semifinal came really close to making her first thousand last uh, last summer in toronto Um, We'll have another, you know, really great opportunity against Svantek or Kvitova, the winner of that match tonight. Some clean hitting from Bagula. Clearly, Bedosa wasn't at her best, wasn't able to get that same stick on her shots in those opening few games. You know, it was sort of a, talk about satisfying, it was a bit of a narratively dissatisfying finish for Bedosa, because I think in the wake of Ash Barty's retirement and the fact that even leading up to that retirement, we were looking for this coterie of cohesive top players really felt like since Barty has retired, we were on the verge of getting that with Svantek, you know seamlessly ascending to number one and Podosa not far behind was a win away from getting number two from Barbora Krejkova either way even with Podosa's exit you have a top three of Svantek, Krejkova, Podosa who are very comfortable on clay so we, it does feel like we're shaping up for a very exciting spring but a disappointing finish for Podosa all the same.
1: Yeah now again it I think you know, when you look for Paula Bedosa, it's a disappointing ending. This was a successful sunshine swing because this was her legitimate uh, first. I mean, Middle East, I suppose, counts as well. But this was her first sunshine swing. We'll say, A, as the defending champion in Indian Wells. But B, you know, as a top 10 player trying to assert herself in the top 10 with serious grand slam points to defend during the natural surface swing, the clay court, Wimbledon, grass court, oh, clay court, I should say grass court swing coming up you look I, I think for just pagula on the flip side is it been a disappointing start to 2022 for her? all right we can do two minutes on this i suppose uh, because i guess i'm trying to think to my head if i'm filling out a match recap uh of today's action and things to monitor from the match moving forward for pagula who i think you tweeted it out what she's played 11 games in her past two matches and just quietly now finds herself in the semifinals, awaiting the winner of iga kvitova I mean, it's a good place to be for Jess Pekula. Probably her best result of the season, even if the path to get there wasn't the most arduous.
2: Yeah, I mean, looking at her two biggest results last year to this year, she's already matched them. She made a debutée 1000 semifinal in Canada and made an Australian Open quarterfinal. She's done both of those things in less time. I would say maybe the wins were more impressive last year, certainly compared to what she's had to do so far in Miami. But, you know, it's always so tough to replicate this sort of of out-of-nowhere Win, but I think we're, what we are seeing is that the Pagula ground game is just. She's one of those pure ball strikers, and that really pays dividends when you're trying to deal with the pressure of backing up a major result. She's healthy. She's feeling confident. Was able to, you know, retain that confidence. I, I, nothing better, I would imagine, than you know, returning to the site of your breakthrough Grand Slam and 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 replicating that result immediately. I think that was you know no better way for her to kick off the season and and. So I would say she couldn't really be asking for that much more. I think the next step would be, can she break through and make that first big final? That's what we're waiting for her, waiting from her uh, in 2022.
1: Yeah, and so okay, I think, what did you call her? One of the great, or one of the great line drive hitters? What was it? I forget what the yeah, tweet uh, was. Pure ball strikers.
2: I mean, it's, pure ball strikers. it, it feels it very basic to throw her name around because I feel like people say it all the time, but she reminds me of Kim Gleister's, especially off the <laughs> forehand side. I mean, just the, I think the execution is different, but the effect was very much the same. The way Kukula was able to step in on that forehand and just drive it down the line was, it was certainly a line drive for large stretches of that first set. I mean, obviously, Bedosa wasn't giving her a ton to work with off the ground in terms of pace, but just... Phenomenal hitting from Pagula for those first five games. Even if Bedosa was feeling healthy, I think it would have been a tough ask for Bedosa. But I did want to also point out Bedosa and Strjantsek, the only two Miami Open quarter finalists who made the last date in Indian Wells. So if you're looking for your power rankings top two, the two players who were able to transition most seamlessly from two very different surfaces and very different conditions. You know, bodes well for the season and the tour uh, heading into the spring.
1: Yeah, if we were to do an award show on the winners of the first third of the season, I'm sure Paula Bedosa will come up in some form because she has been that solid here at the start of the year. She's looked the part of top 10 player. And again, you keep in mind, do we think Paula Bedosa is in the prime of her career right now? It, I would think the sh- the only argument you could make is maybe she's starting it like maybe this is what the beginning of her prime looks like but certainly it feels like there's still better tennis to come from her as well uh, obviously she's not at her healthiest today but credit to Jess Pegula who I think unequivocally is right now in the prime of her career. With that said, I want to get back to the women's action a bit later because certainly the rise of Naomi Osaka, who is just in one of those zones right now where she looks like the unequivocal best player in the world on a hard court. I want to talk about her. I want to talk about the continuing ascension of Iga. I want to talk about the quiet excellence of Belinda Bencic, who has become almost a forgotten Player in what is the broader WTA narrative, but certainly there are some men storylines we have to hit, and we're recording this again here on Wednesday. I think anyone who listens to a daily tennis podcast certainly is aware of what happened last night in Miami. Carlos Alcaraz, five-two down in the first set, comes back to earn a straight-set victory over Stefano Tsitsipas, another win for him over Tsitsipas. I want to talk about the Alcaraz sensation. I want to talk about Yannick Sinner, where he fits into the equation. Next gen versus next, next gen. We're gonna hit on all of that, David, I promise, here on today's show. But of course, before we do, shout out to our friends at Tennis Point. For the support they give us day in, day out. And, you know, again, if you need anything from an equipment standpoint in the tennis world, shoes, socks, shirts, shorts, hats, strings, rackets, you name it, they've got it and more. Find it in all one location on their website, tennis-point.com. Use our promo code CR15 when you inevitably make a purchase. You'll get 15% off all sale items, free two-day shipping on all orders exceeding $75. Best of all, a free can of Wilson Extra Duty Tennis Balls. It's tennis-point.com. The simple not the spelling, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15. With all of that said, David, let's get into Carlos Alcaraz and just talk again about what was a sensational night of tennis last night in Miami and I mean, Carlos Alcaraz has done some special things already to this point of his career. And if you look at all of the record books for the ATP Challenger Tour in terms of the five, six youngest guys to do anything at the top of every list, you're going to see Rafa Nadal, Novak Djokovic, Juan Martin Del Potro, a lot of Felix Oshir Aliassim, and you're going to see Carlos Alcaraz now on the top of that list. Now, you're also going to see a lot of Bernard Tomic. We can cover that, I suppose, a different time, but those are the guys who are always the and the first to accomplish all of these different things. And obviously for Alcaraz, that success has translated onto the ATP tour. And you look for Carlos Alcaraz over the last 52 weeks. He's 56 and 15, David. 56 and 15. He's 18 years old. He's winning 79% of his matches. You look in 2022. This is the scariest number I can think of. He is breaking serve 38.7% of the time. 18 years old that break percentage higher than a prime Rafael Nadal higher than a prime Novak Djokovic and I'll tell you what that outlandish of a number matches exactly what we're seeing with our eyes which is what statistics in tennis are best used for the guy just breaks serves at will he's in every point whether it's you know again on the return of serve obviously starting with his own serve and yesterday against Stefano Tsitsipas in his 7563 victory there were moments where it was seeming there was seemingly nothing he couldn't do, whether it's obvious in the first 10 minutes of the match, one-all, he hits the tweener lob over the head of Stefano Tsitsipas, ultimately wins the point. Whether it's the, you know, backhand on the run lobs he hit over the head of Tsitsipas repeatedly, whether it be in the first set, whether it be in the second set, just over and over again, coming up with this remarkable, you know, defense on, on the stretch and this athleticism he displays. And then he'll uncork the 120-mile-per-hour forehand. And then he'll serve and volley. And he'll do all of these different things. I mean, not only are the weapons so glaringly obvious, but on the flip side of that, when you ask yourself, well, what's the game plan to beat Carlos Alcaraz? What's the weakness? I know, again, he's 18 years old. Yeah, the second serve hangs up a little bit. That happens to anyone. I don't know what the weakness is, David. Like, this guy, this kid is that good.
2: Based on the way we talk about Alcaraz, how many Grand Slams do you think he has already won? <laughs>
1: well, uh, six.
2: Yeah, it, I was going to say, is it more or less than Andy Murray? I feel <laughs> like at this point, it's more. I mean, and I think a lot of that does have to do with the you know, narrative lineage. I mean, this is you know, the crown prince of, of the Rafa Nadal throne. I mean, I think that's been a pretty... I mean, I can only imagine what it's going to be like In Madrid, I mean, this is really just, it feels like the second coming and it's coming fast to the point where it almost feels like if 2022 comes to a close and Alcaraz doesn't win a slam or maybe at least make a final, it's going to start to feel like a bit of a disappointment. I feel like we've really hit a fever pitch in the last couple of weeks in particular. But, you know, as you said, you can't argue those numbers and you can't argue the way that he's dismantling players on the court. I mean, it's really... It's crazy because less than a year ago Stefano Tsitsipas was very much looking like, you know, the de facto French Open champion when he was up two sets on Novak Djokovic and yet against Alcaraz last night he very much looked like old news. I mean, it's like he's he's like the he's the past model already and he's not that old, I, you know, and I think it's a lot of excitement on on behalf of, you know, ATP fans, ATP Media, You know, this is the first young player who not only can one get excited about get excited about, but it feels like we can reasonably expect him to win a slam within the next two years, not only just because of the talent, but because of the way that the men's game is positioned right now, that the, the, the three men who've been dominating the Grand Slams for the last two decades are seemingly on their way out. Now, we may have a very different conversation this time next year because they are eternal <laughs> as has been established over the last couple of years. But I think you know Alcaraz is really be- looking like the first person who everyone genuinely believes will knock down that door and sort of begin his own era. I mean, it's, it's a new world order and thy name is Carlos Alcaraz.
1: Well, I guess the question I would ask off of that is why do we speak of him that way? And the answer to me is just the maturity we see physically. I mean, 18 years old, he's outdoing Stefano Cizzi who's what three, four, five years his elder, maybe six now. It's just, yeah, I guess six because Cizzi is 24. Like, it's that, and the and and the lack of holes in his game. It's how complete a package Carlos Alcaraz already presents on court, and obviously the jump he made physically this off season. Just. Special. I mean, to put on muscle in a six-week off-season the way that he did, 99% of humans aren't capable of doing that. And he was already an exceptional mover. And I think if you go back and watch his five-set win over Tsitsipas at last year's U.S. Open, the physicality was never going to be a problem for Alcaraz. But the accelerated growth at which he's already reaching his prime form or make you think, oh, my God, if this is him just scratching the surface, what's it going to look like at 23, 24 years old? That's where the excitement comes from. And, you know, I couldn't help myself last night, so I looked up some numbers, as I am prone to doing, went on the old tennis abstract machine and, you know, dialed some things up. You look for Alcaraz, who turns 19 in May. He's 48 and 20 in the ATP matches that he's played to date. So that's a 71% win percentage. 18 years old, he's winning 71% of his matches already. There's a reason, folks. He's top 15 right now in the live rankings. He's 9 and 7 against top 20 opponents, not beat your chest outstanding, but again, on track to be a top 10 player in the near future, holding serve 78% of the time, which has, you know, he's over 80% here this season, and he's gotten better at that number, but certainly that's the one you say, okay, there's the low hanging fruit for improvement. He's already breaking serve 32.4% of the time, and he has three ATP titles to his name. You know, again, those are both top five sorts of numbers for a guy his age and, Guy, you know, for the break percentage of top five number in general, let's compare it to Rafa by age 19 because that's what you got to do, right? If you're in this game long enough, Rafa by age 19 and he had a massive January to turning 19 in June of that year, uh, where he won his first grand slam title and had this first massive clay court stretch that happened 18 turning 19. He was 93 and 36 which is a bigger number than Alcaraz, but only, you know, again, a 72% win percentage. So Alcaraz is at 71%, Nadal's at 72. Nadal was 18 and 14 against top 20 opponents by that point. Alcaraz is 9 and 7, so Nadal is just double what Alcaraz has done. But again, percentage-wise, exactly the same. Alcaraz was at a 78% hold percentage. Nadal is at 798 Alcaraz is at a 32.4% hold percentage. Nadal was at 34.7%. Obviously, Nadal had the seven ATP titles, including the French Open title. Alcaraz right now at three. Nadal is a little ahead, but it's just a little. Like, again, I'm not trying to hoist these ridiculous expectations on Rafael Nadal, uh, on Carlos Alcaraz. I am trying to put those expectations on Nadal. I'm not trying to say he needs to be Rafael Nadal moving forward and win 20-plus Grand Slams titles to be a success. I am saying, why is there excitement about Carlos Alcaraz? Because if you look at the numbers and you just use your freaking eyes and see what Carlos Alcaraz is doing here uh, at this Indian Wells, just, again, the ease with which he is blitzing through opponent after opponent, whether it's Tsitsipas, whether it's Chilich, whether it's Fucevic, everything indicates this guy is on the path towards stardom
2: those nadal numbers are wild especially when you think of the fact that he did miss a big chunk of that 2004 yeah. clay court swing i mean it could be potentially even even greater but i think yeah the physicality is really a big uh point at play here i mean especially compared to and you even look at Tsitsipas or zverev certainly even a Taylor fritz who are significantly older than Alcaraz in in, in uh, longevity and yet still appear to be growing into their bodies in many respects. I mean, they haven't, they certainly haven't put on that degree of muscle mass, but I mean, it's just, it's, I think it is, I think it is the narrative comparison. I think it is the the intense physical transformation. I can't really, I mean, I don't think we've been talk we've, I don't think we've spoken about a physical transformation this dramatic since probably 2010-11 Marty Fish. I mean, like, most players do not undergo radical physical changes like this, but we're seeing it pay off right away to the point where, you know, it's funny that um, if it wasn't for this resurgence from Nadal, and maybe the fact that the this injury that he's had may, you know, uh, recalibrate things, but I think if, if Nadal had been playing the way he was last year, you know, Alcaraz would have been the de, de facto favorite to win Roland Garros. I think now it's probably even, but... um And he certainly has a shot at the U.S. Open. I mean, we may even have a shot at Wimbledon. I mean, we just—I mean, the way that we're talking about him right now is is really crazy. But it's—I think this um, this clay court swing is going to be quite illuminating in terms of whether he can match the uh, the sheer dominance of a Nadal of a peak Nadal on clay, where Alcaraz stacks up in that respect. Because that's I think what's most impressive so far is that he's doing all of this on what is ostensibly his his lesser successful surface when you compare it to something like clay, where he should really. Really shine.
1: Yeah, where of course he won a 500 level title earlier this season already. And, you know, again, you look at the numbers. Alcaraz, number five in tennis abstracts overall ELO ratings, which measure who you play and how you beat them as opposed to when and where, like the ATP rankings. He's fourth in yearly ELO rating, which measures just 2022 specific results. Of course, he's up to a new career high of number 15 in the live rankings. You look for him in the points race. Alcaraz, seventh right now. I think all of us would shoo him into Tareen. If you were to ask the tennis intelligentsia and tennis fan base at large, do you expect to see Carlos Alcaraz at the year-end finals? I think there would be a resounding yes from every corner of the tennis universe. And that's a testament to, again, how well he has played, what everyone's seeing with their eyes, what he has accomplished historically compared to his peers. Now, on the flip side, and, you know, there's nothing I enjoy more than quoting my own tweets. I tweeted out some stats for from 2022 for the uh, Miami Open men still live heading into today's quarterfinal action. And again, it's now past 3 o'clock, so I believe Sinner Serendolo is underway. You look at the numbers right now for Carlos Alcaraz. He is one of, I believe, yeah, uh, 13 players to rank top 25 in both hold and break percentage, which obviously to do that at age 18 is just ridiculous and a testament to the growth we've already seen from him on serve. There are only eight players who rank top six, uh, who rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. And that's only eight players over, not only here the first three months of 2022, but over the last 52 weeks as well. In 2022, Yannick Sinner is one of the eight players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Carlos Alcaraz is not. Over the last 52 weeks, Yannick Sinner is one of just eight players to rank top 20 in both hold and break percentage. Carlos Alcaraz is not. You look for Yannick Sinner here to start the season. The quietest 16-2 and start to the year overall. And certainly it was disappointing to see him blitzed in straight sets by Pass in Australia. And certainly, you know, again, to lose in Hercot's the fashion that he did straight sets, I think, in Rotterdam earlier this year, wasn't great either. Obviously had to bow out with injury before he played Kyrgios at Indian Wells, but we saw whatever that was with Kyrgios uh, yesterday in Miami. And we can get into that, I suppose, today if you'd like as well, David. But you look for Yannick Sinner, 16-2 and two to start the year, you know, 85.9% hold percentage, which is better than Carlos Alcaraz here this season, breaking 24.9% of the time, which obviously isn't the outlandish number that we see for Alcaraz, but it's still top 20 amongst top 50 players. For lack of a better term, Yannick Sinner's f- good. And Yannick Sinner is still only 20 years old. He's 11 right now in the world. You look for him in terms of the points race right now. Uh, I believe Yannick Sinner uh, currently 12th in that points race to Turin as well. We've already seen him now make multiple quarterfinals at Grand Slams on multiple surfaces. I don't want to say are we selling Yannick Sinner short because I think that's one of those straw men that happen on Twitter that you know enraged me. But like I don't want to forget the Yannick Sinner piece of this equation because I think there's a potential Sinner Alcaraz rivalry blooming that could just really, I don't want to say carry, but could be at the forefront of the next decade of men's tennis.
2: I mean, I think it would be what's the word? Cheesy to sell out <laughs> Yannick Sinner at this stage of the game. But I think the big difference between Sinner and Alcaraz and why Alcaraz has seemingly lapped um Sinner in reputation and anticipation is two things the physicality and that seemingly lack of a signature match or results i mean i think you could even go back to alcaraz's three-setter against nadal just a few weeks ago in indian wells he didn't win the match but it was a spotlight match where he played really well against you know one of those iconic players and has had quite a few opportunities so far and no disrespect to him he's still very young has not really played one of those oh my god matches against a federer nadal djokovic obviously both of them that and Djokovic have not been around a lot to even give them those opportunities, but he has played Nadal. He played, uh, was it Djokovic I think last year in Monte Carlo. I remember watching that match was impressed by Sinner's ball striking, but just didn't have the consistency to match up with Djokovic that day. So I think, you know, Sinner is continuing to put himself in these winning positions. I mean, he's, he made the final Miami last year. This is only his second uh, Masters 1000 quarter final, I believe. And they're both here in Miami, and you think back to a year ago, he was looking like the the obvious pick to win Miami last year, ended up losing to Hurkats, could be, you know, a, a very different way we'd all be talking about him had he managed to win that title last year. That said, you know, he was a great foil to Nick Kyrgios in that last round, you know, calm, collected, sort of this mature, you know, wise beyond his years mentality and it rewarded him with the win. And, you know, he gets a section of the draw against, you know, a significantly less experienced uh, Sorandulo less experienced even of the Surundula brothers, you know, if you're gonna compare them. So I think another opportunity for him to make a big semi-final gets the winner of Rude Zverev. I'm already getting nauseous at the thought of like, who can be, how everyone's gonna fit in the top eight, because we I think we've already qualified, I think eight people in the last few minutes. And we haven't even talked about Casper Rude yet. How is he gonna make it back and defend his semi-final <laughs> points? But I think, um, yeah, I think, you know, it's very. It feels a little tortoise in the hair with Sinner and Alcaraz right now. I mean, Alcaraz has gotten off to a really big start, but Sinner certainly has the weapons and the mind to you know play the long game here as well.
1: So we're calling Sinner the tortoise in this equation, right? Because I think that Correct. is what we have to use in this. I can we tweet that out? That's the storyline for them when they play moving forward. It's the tortoise versus the hare, and I think that's actually an excellent analogy. I'm a hundred thousand <laughs> percent stealing that. Now, you mention it. You know, Alcaraz, 9-7 versus top 20 opponents, 2-4 versus top 10 in his career, but it's the stage at which some of those have come to beat Ponce both at the U.S. Open, to beat him here in a Miami event as well. The pageantry, the grandeur, the energy that comes with playing this sort of exciting and high-quality level of tennis just comes so naturally to Carlos Alcaraz. It's not as natural for Yannick Sinner. He's trying to do a better job, and you can draw a through line directly from the Francis Tiafo match in Vienna, where Francis just out energied him to a three set match, to the sinner we now see emerging on court the energy he plays with, the enthusiasm he tries to generate from the crowd now, that is a new component he's trying to introduce to his game. I think there's no question about it. At the same time, it's still a little bit robotic. It's still a little bit forced. It's just not as natural because it's not the breathtaking athleticism that just immediately and naturally draws fans out of their feet. That's the game style of Alcaraz. To your point, for Sinner, he's just going to bludgeon you and bludgeon you and bludgeon you and strikes the ball so well at the same time, I mean he gets better and better as a mover every time I see him play. I think he, much like early Rafa, has like Early Rafa, you know, the one of my you know, Gil and I do a segment, your friend Gillian. Um uh what do we or what did we agree to call him moving forward? It wasn't Gillum. It was uh Gilbert Yeah, <laughs> Gillasaurus. Anyways, we uh we, we do a running gig where we you know people don't talk enough about x where it's like you know everyone's talking about it so that's not even funny and like people don't talk enough about Rafa as a vollier was probably the people don't talk enough about of the 2010s like it's like no everyone knows he's a good vollier. and so many people call him underrated that maybe now he's overrated but at this point he's just that good at volleying, and so he is neither over nor underrated as a vollier. he's just exceptional at it Yannick Sinner will be the new, people don't talk enough about how solid a volleyer he is because he really is a solid volleyer, knows where to go, what to do, how to leverage the core positioning. He's opened with his ground strokes to be efficient at the net. At the same time, again, it's not as breathtaking as Carlos Alcaraz. But percentage-wise, he's the more efficient player right now. And, you know, again, I mentioned it, 9-7 for Alcaraz against the top 20, 2-4 against the top 10. You look for Yannick Sinner, 17-18 against the top 20, though, 8-8, I believe, in the last 52 weeks. That's not bad. You look for him overall, though, in his career, 6-13 versus the top 10 now has gotten some good wins certainly 2020 Roland Garros he beats Zverev in the round of 16 in straight sets although Zverev you know was sick or whatever and so kind of clouded that victory just because Zverev played so poorly that it was just like yeah Sinner crushed him he should have crushed him on that day he beats Tsitsipas Rome round 32 no one's going to remember that match respectfully he beats Uh, Rublev Barcelona quarterfinals Again, unless you're a hardcore nerd That's not really going to pique your interest The opportunities he had Roland Garros 2020 against Rafa quarterfinals he goes to that first set breaker, ultimately loses four and one the next two sets. Again, doesn't get a set. That's something Alcarez has really been able to do. Loses in straight sets to Rafa the next year. Roll, Or, you know, last year's Roland Garros round of 16. Again, straight sets. Lost to Zverev last year's US Open round of 16 straight sets. Australian Open quarterfinal lost to Tsitsipas straight sets. He keeps knocking on the door, but you're right. He doesn't have the signature win. That said... At a certain point, you knock knocking off, you're going to get let in. Like, my argument would be he has knocked more frequently than Carlos Alcaraz has. Carlos just has a more compelling, I guess, doorbell ring.
2: I mean, I feel like we've known about Yannick Sinner way longer. I mean, we just started sure. to get to know Alcaraz at the beginning of last year a little bit, and that was just mainly because I was working on a 21 and under club story, and <laughs> he was one of those players who had just, just made his Australian up Open
1: challengers and all these different things. Yeah, yeah,
2: those those challenger results. I mean, that was really his calling card, and and so he has gotten the better of Sinner in terms of like the that race towards you know the breakthrough. But again, I mean, with with Sinner's gifts, I think that. Um, the sky is really the limit for him, and I think we—he's still only, like you said, he's only 20 years old. We're looking at the average age of these players who were left. The average age of the players who were at the w, at the ATP Finals, I should say, and they were in their mid 20s. So there, there's certainly a three to four year, you know, grace period these days. It would seem for ATP players to hit their prime. But even if that's the benchmark, Sinner is seemingly well ahead of that. I don't know if I certainly don't think he would have the same level of disappointment. If he ends 2022 without a slam as compared to Alcaraz, even though Sinner has, as you said, seemingly had more opportunities already, but that's just a testament to how quickly Alcaraz has invaded everybody's uh, consciousness.
1: Well, I think both guys feel ready. Certainly for Sinner, he gets to sniff and ultimately play matches in the Tureen field at the end of last season and being a part of that race. Obviously, he's had some health issues here at the start of the year, but still, again, Ruthlessly efficient, sixteen and two. He's beating everyone he's supposed to beat. It's now about you know competing and being as good as his peers. But certainly, I think one of the storylines that's emerged during this Miami Open is this concept of the next gen versus the next next gen. Because everyone right now is excited about Alcaraz, and I think plenty of people are still very excited about Yannick Sinner, even if some of that excitement has dissipated or gotten lost in the Alcaraz fanaticism. Um, that said, you know, very quietly, you looked at the round of 16. Everyone was 26 or under. You know, I would have been the third oldest player in the draw in the round of 16 had I qualified in Miami. It's a shame I had to withdraw due to injury because like that was a big opening for me. Um, but, you know, it's it's a young group right now who's having a ton of success. And we've talked about that before. The WTA-fication of the ATP Tour certainly If you've watched this week's action unfold, Medvedev's back in control. And you watched for him yesterday. You know, Brooksby serves for the setup 5-4. Doesn't even get to a set point. Medvedev just gets rock solid. Goes into, I'm going to out Brooksby, you, Jensen. Not make an unforced error. I'm going to serve well and just dip my returns low. Not get you anything obvious to work with. He looked like a world, you know, number two, number one. And just has been dominant against Martinez, Murray, Brooksby. These guys who just didn't have the weapons to hurt him. He out-physicaled all of them. I also think Zverev has looked the best he's looked all season. And, you know, again, you look here in 2022, just the three months of play in 2022, there is only one player who is top 10 in both hold and break percentage right now. Shockingly, it's the 14 and four Alex Zverev, who I don't think any of us would say has played well to start the season. And yet, somehow, it's just you look at the numbers, it's like, no, nah, he's still been fine. Like, he's still been himself, quietly along. A damning along.
2: indictment of those numbers, if you yeah, ask me, based on yeah,
1: his that's,
0: that's
2: the first time the top 10 club
1: has had to go under review. And we had to do a quick, uh, you know, but I get at the same I mean, he's time. he's under
2: investigation wherever club he's at. These yeah. Days, so I
1: guess. <laughs> exactly. Um, point being, if you've watched him play, whether it was third set against Chorich. The match he played against Mackey was exceptional. Yesterday, he was in control against Kokonakis from start to finish. He's playing the best tennis of the season this week, certainly in Miami. Casper Rude's gotten back into form. And again, Casper Rude very quietly. You look for him here in 2022. Again, it it sucked because he wasn't able to do what he wanted to do uh, at the Australian Open. But you look for Casper Rude, 11-3 overall in the year. He's held 91% of the time breaking serve 26.4% of the time. Like he's very much in that top 15 club sort of mix at the same time. it And by the way, Hubie Hercotts, your defending champion, 13 and five overall on the year. He's, you know, holding serve 90.5% of the time. That's a top 10 number. That's the elite sort of number that keeps you no matter what's happening on the return of serve in the top 20, top 15 of the ATP rankings. The next gen's quietly humming along. Like, they all held seed. They all get to the quarterfinals. At the same time, it does feel like the next next gen, whether it's Alcaraz, whether it's Sinner. I consider Felix more next next gen than next gen, despite how long he's been a part of the ecosystem. Are you team next next gen, or are you team next gen? I'm just going to try well, to say that as frequently we, as possible.
2: First of all, I feel like we need some context. of need call on this next
1: system. gen 2.0.
2: Because I feel like uh, when we go back to if if, if time began in 2003 so when Federer the, won the one Wimbledon, yeah. well, how many gen- generations so have the, passed between then and now?
1: So the next gen campaign began with the 1996s. Oh, right. It's the first. That's what I consider the next geners. Is if you were born from 1996. To just about 1999, because I consider Hour and Shapovalov more team Medvedev and Tsitsipas than I do team Sinner and Alcaraz. And so I would sneak them in. I would say Shapo, Felix, the divide in their age is the dividing line. You know, the Kordas, Brooksbys, Felixes of the world are next gen 2.0. The Shapo's and older next gen. Kesmanovic is right on that line. He would technically be a next-gen, and it's been great to see his rise, by the way, because, you know, he is one of the five best or most improved players. I would say the second most improved player probably in men's tennis behind uh, Carlos Alcaraz. He's got 19 wins on the season, 19-6 and overall, and, you know, round of 16s, and I believe quarterfinals in both Indian Wells and Miami. I mean, that's a guy who, right now, 15th in the race to Tureen. Like, he has, you know, again— 80% 80% of the field is eliminated by the start of clay court season. Miomir Kecmanovic has not been eliminated from the year-end finals race. The next gen's been pretty solid this year. Medvedev made the freaking Australian Open final. Like, and there was legitimate thought, okay, is this where he's going to beat Djokovic because he's been so battle-tested, or a doll, excuse me, on his way here. And he's up two sets to love. And, you know, he's up break points to make it a break lead in the third. Like, they really haven't been that bad and it feels like people are ready to move on to next gen
2: 2.0. No, no, I, I, w- I was just trying to put into context, yeah, like sure. how many, how many like groups of fallen soldiers we have <laughs> seen like come and go in between Federer winning his first Wimbledon to like now we are finally at a position where these eight quarterfinalists who are not Federer, Nadal, Djokovic are all kind of you could reasonably expect because it maybe from Sarandulo so far mm-hmm. you know like a grand slam semifinal or better or perhaps even i mean is there other than Sarandulo and maybe Kachimovic those six would you look at them as potential grand slam champions and how much of that is because of the way that they're playing or just a function of time and just them having those opportunities it's it's
1: both like, I do think, A, again, from a number standpoint, and I like the numbers a lot, but I think it matches the eye test, and certainly you look at the year-end finals, whether it be the tsitsipas F, medvedev dominance of that event, the success they've all had at Masters events at various points of the season. I do think also just from a percentage standpoint, they are all now good enough to be winning Grand Slam events. I mean, again, not... I, I feel like there's a perception of me as an Alex Verov fan. I am not a fan of Alex Verov, the person. I have always been enamored with the tennis game of Alex Verov. And if I had a men in black mind tranquilizer, I think that would be the take I would erase from my brain and just be like, get this away from you. Because there are times when just at six foot six, I just think like, all right, everyone else can't do that, but you can. And I, unfortunately, I just, I, from that tennis perspective, the point being,
2: I mean, not at best of five, but yes, sure.
1: My <laughs> counterpoint would be, you know, he serves for the match against Dominic Team in the 2020 U.S. Open. It's like, or, or, or had the opportunity to get there. It's like, if he... Oh, God.
2: Don't who, mention the ugliest Grand Slam final well, match. it's just like, <laughs> like, but what if he wins
1: that match? Then what do the next, what do the, the the past 18 months look like if he just gets the confidence of that first breakthrough because you feel like it would be more valuable to his game than perhaps all the rest? At the sure. same time, all this is to say, him... Medvedev's won a freaking Grand Slam. Tsitsipas is one set away from running the French Open final last year. I think Berrettini on the grass courts is always going to be menacing. I think these guys are good enough. Now, certainly some of the field has fallen back. But, like, don't we agree that the Zverevs and Medvedevs of the world, even on surface level, and I think the percentages would back this up, I think they're better players than
2: Like around, certainly, 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 I was gonna
1: say Ranich, Dimitrov certainly. Chilich, see, that's the one I was struggling with. Like Chilich, I don't know because, Chilich is the role model. So my first take ever in tennis, very first take. Like, oh no, you know, no, no, no. When I was old enough to form a coherent take, 2006, 2007 Australian Open, you watch this six foot five, six foot six guy with my sort of eyebrows, lengthy as hell, just moving so fluidly out there and then ripping balls, both forehand, backhand, wing. And just, and I just remember talking to my older brother and being like, this guy is going to be amazing. Like, look at what he's doing. Look how fluid he is for his size. I, God willing, I was using the word fluid there, but I was just like, you're not supposed to be able to move like that. I think my very first take ever was that Chillich will win a Grand Slam, and thank the lords it has paid, it paid dividends. That's when I knew. Um, okay, maybe I should get into the business. Um, but, like, he is the role mo- like, He was very, very good. I think Nishikori was very, very good. But if you're asking me, do I think the Medvedevs and the Zerevs of the world are better players than they were at their peaks? I would say the answer to that question is yes.
2: That Medvedev and Zverev are better than... Peake and and, and- okay,
1: That their and peaks will be better than those guys' peaks.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating just to see, like, who is... I mean, because even you talk about Alcaraz lapping Sinner in prestige. I mean, I think... Yeah. There was an argument to be made about Casper rude's you know prowess on clay and i think a combination of the fact that he did not play australia and the fact that you know alcaraz has really you know taken everybody uh by the throats in the last couple of weeks and months so, you know rude was very much looking like a potential um grand slam champion at the french open this year still needs to put together you know a, a, a credible run at a major tournament i mean i think it's a it's a it's very easy to be won over by the newer prettier model and I think that was sort of the the, the, the dichotomy that we saw play out between Alcaraz and Tsitsipas I And mean, I did just refer to Tsitsipas sort of old hat compared to yeah. to Alcaraz um Tsitsipas born think-
1: 1998 he's an old hat now
2: yeah, I think this is it, these old news. I mean, it, it's very much the the quad revolution in ladies' skating. I mean, like we went from a triple axel was like oh my one triple axel to now it's like I'm sorry if you don't have you know three or four quads, which is like mm-hmm. a tr- an exponential jump in difficulty. You're not even competitive. It's like it in it, 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 within a year that happened. But um, everyone
1: knows about the quads. Explore, everybody uh, the knows about the, of the about quad. the quads
2: as I as yeah. I ju- as I gesture to my to my lower half. But I think. um, I think right now it's sort of a moot debate because i think this is for the first time where it feels like everybody is capable of winning a slam and i think that that is because of time and i think that's what's most exciting to me about this era this fast approaching era of atp men's tennis because they're obviously Djokovic and nadal still exist federer still exists they, none of no one has retired and nadal did just win the most recent slam but looking ahead i do think what's going to be so exciting about this next couple of years in men's tennis is that the excuses are gone everyone we're yeah. going to really see what everybody is made of and it's not going to be someone who was a victim of you know sort of birth and the, the fact yeah. they just happened to be a, a pro at a time when you know three of the greatest players of all time all were winning all the slams you know thomas burdich you know even like a david ferrer would have probably won a slam in the, in the, mid, in the mid to late 90s i mean these are just players who did not get those opportunities and now we're really getting to see. And we've also gotten to see a lot of players hone their games and you know we've seen an upswing in just like I think ridiculous talent. I mean like you said, you know, going down that list of just, you know, the unique and interesting game styles. You know, everyone has kind of adapted their game around what is this modern answer to the big 3 and we're seeing a lot of different strategies all play out at once. And that makes it very exciting. But again, I think what's most exciting to me is the fact that the excuses are gone. Now we're going to get to see who is really the best of this crop of players. Cause we've been having the same debate about the same three players for a really long time. And now it's going to be it's everybody's turn. Now it's either put up or shut up. And so, and I think, I am mean, obviously I think Medvedev is probably in, in pole position as, you know, the most, the most recent young guy to win a slam and is, is healthy and confident and a solid player on two out of the four slams almost de facto and then, you know, needs to put together, you know, more credible stuff on clay and grass, but there's certainly young, you know, young guys and younger guys who can, who could do that as well. So I think, yeah, I think it's, it's the first time we're seeing this debate sort of not matter. And that's kind of cool.
1: Yeah, no, again, the debate's not big three versus someone, it's next gen versus next gen 2.0. Like these, these players are already... I have a list of six guys that I've I'm constantly pruning and updating, and I reevaluate every so often. That I have as locks to win slams in this decade. I feel pretty good about this six. I'm not ready to add anyone else to the list. My list. You ready to hear them? Oh God, Medvedev, I... who's already done it, obviously. Zverev is still on that list. I, I think he is going to get one at least. Tsitsipas still on that list. Then I have Felix, Sinner, Alcaraz. Those would be my six locks to win a slam in this decade. Would you agree, disagree with all of those names? Would you add any names to the list? Where are you at right now? If I were to ask you, give me your locks.
2: See, I guess it does then speak to that sort of next next gen recency bias. The fact that I would put Felix Sinner and Alcaraz all ahead of even Sitsipas and Zverev. I mean, un- until Sitsipas gets healthy, and I would I would put Sitsipas ahead of Zverev because I would say that in many respects, although I think by by game Zverev got closer, but I think Sitsipas played a lot better in his mm-hmm. Grand Slam final as compared to to Zverev. But I think that both of them have really just been outpaced by this by this trio. Felix a bit less so but still I think just it's hard not to be wowed by Sinner and Alcaraz what they can bring and what they've been able to bring already you know this is it just feels like a new frontier and it's hard not to be swayed by that and then it is up to you know a Medvedev I think to hold them off um yeah I think that yeah I'm really reticent to put either based on what I've seen over the last couple of months I'm reticent to put either Tsitsipas or Zverev as locks guaranteed locks I, certainly compared to Medvedev who I did really very much feel was there was a matter it was only a matter of time because he was going to get those two shots a year of winning you know a hard court slam
1: is your guy Casper still on your list?
2: no because he hasn't made the semis of a slam a, yet
1: yeah or a quarter
2: I mean he's he's a lock in my heart like, he's <laughs> not he's not a lock in the, in the winner's circle yet That's because good. he's got a yeah
1: so then if I were to ask in I think you've made this clear. If you are to total it at the end, Alcaraz, Sinner, FAA versus Tsitsipas, Medvedev, Zverev, which trio ends up, since we love groups of three, which trio ends up with more career slams? By the oh, way, next throw Nadal, and Djokovic, and Federer on that list, and from here on out, which group ends up with more slams? So,
2: so three versus three versus three?
1: Yeah, so it's a three oh versus three versus
2: three. Oh, that's rough. Um, I mean... well who is less likely to win a slam right now federer or felix i mean i guess you'd have to say (laughs) federer so uh, like we're looking at the who is the c who is the c-list player of that trio right now would be those Mm -hmm. two um i mean i guess you have to go with time and and support you know next next gen i mean even with medvedev potentially you know winning one to two slams a year you know he's got two other guys who have not proven capable of doing it and you've got three guys who are much younger who are the new All models the
1: precipice yeah yeah
2: and so it's it's fun <sighs> it's how that it's how that works time yeah, funny no, thing it, it's fun yeah <laughs> by
1: the way we I just threw him out there any Kazmenevich thoughts
2: on meow meow Kazmenevich I mean talk about talk about time talk about someone who is like just a, a total sliding doors moment. I mean, I think mm-hmm. we, you could even Google the, uh, the match that he was scheduled to play uh, against Novak Djokovic. I think the Google store board still has it up and under canceled <laughs> because he was supposed to play uh, his, his countryman and world number one in the first round of the Australian Open. It doesn't happen uh, for, for legal and ethical reasons. And, mm-hmm. you know, Ke- Kexmanovic is a totally different player as a result. I mean, it seems fairly overdue. I know he was working with Malbandian last year. He felt like one of those players, I think I compared him to Tamea Babosh and sort of like that, Someone who was just seemingly very physically talented, who had had some decent results, but had not really broken through, and now to get that win over Taylor Fritz, you know, ending that sunshine, sunshine double campaign on his part, you know, it's that's a that's a pretty it's a pretty big statement win for for Ke- who then will get Alcaraz. Although I do think that Alcaraz wins that match based on the way Alcaraz has been playing again, next next gen all the way.
1: Yeah, no, it's not a weapons thing, but just what's the weakness for uh for Kasmanovic? How do you attack him consistently over the course of 2 hours? Physically, he's locked in the backhand so solid and just again, he's able to drive through that ball and then I think the forehands it's it's definitely a big backswing. I also think that forehand's going to have a lot of success on clay because of how much action he can put on the ball. At the same time, it's become less attackable and he's holding serve, you know, 84% of the time, which is seven percent above his career average and like again my that serve was the big reason he struggled so mightily the 18 months before this season I mean yeah 15th in the race to the year end finals he has been that good and just you know again 22 years old 23 years old and Uh, You do feel like he's just scratching the surface, that there's another jump for him physically as, you know, again, he begins to fill out his body. And just now that he's got confidence to go along with everything that he does, it's very Norrie-ish, where it's just like, I don't see the discernible weakness. I think this guy's going to win a lot of matches just with how solid he is physically and be in the top 50 for a really long time, which ultimately, as a pro player, is all you can ask for. But is he out of the GOAT race? He has been eliminated, sadly. If you put together a—if you lose 15 first-round matches in a year, you're eliminated from the GOAT. I'm pretty sure he lost 15 first-round matches last season. So, yeah, sadly eliminated. I haven't eliminated Felix Sinner or Alcaraz. I I know we've discussed this before. They're still all—Felix has to win a slam this year, otherwise he's eliminated. Sinner has a year and a half. Alcaraz is fine.
2: Yeah, yeah, Felix had to win a title this year, although yeah. I, I'm still very suspicious of that finals record. I, I think I did a poll when he won his first title a few weeks ago. See, I How- think,
1: and this gets into my LeBron, sorry, you trigger point here. This is a <laughs> LeBron versus Michael Jordan thing too. Oh no. Would you have preferred he just lose in the semis? Like to me, that's why I think that final argument is, I'll just say it's stupid. Cause it's like, what again, he was not even 21 years old. He made, what, eight finals before winning his first, seven finals before winning his first title. Would you have preferred he made seven semifinals instead? And it's just like, well, at least he's not losing in finals. Like, would you rather have someone be 2-0 and o in finals or 0-8 in finals? Uh, give me the guy who's 0-8 at age 21 because, like, that guy just keeps putting himself in an opportunity to do it.
2: I mean, how many finals did it take Francesca Schiavone to win her first (laughs) (laughs) time? I think it's very very similar in that, you know, but, you know, Fran did win a slam, so Felix has that going for him perhaps, but I don't know. It's It's a great call. There's something, something about that key. I mean, you look at those, you know, it's just one of those stats that you look at. It's Certainly one of those stats that I look at. I mean, I know you have a whole longer list of stats that maybe offset that, but one—it's certainly one of the ones that I look at when I go. <laughs> gotta, gotta turn that one around. But I, I did poll on Twitter if they, if people thought it would take, if he'd ever, you know, surpass that finals record, if it would, how long it would take him to tie. And I think most people were very confident that he's gonna, you know, start reeling off titles right away. So I mean, it sounds like he's get started <laughs> based yeah. on, based on what the people think.
1: No, I mean, yeah, get rocking and rolling. Um, no, I, again, I think. <laughs> And we haven't talked much about Hubie Hercats, who just kind of epitomizes the modern era, in my opinion, of ATP tennis. Six foot six can kind of do everything. And for him, it's still just figuring out what is plan A, because I can do B, C, D, E, and F. But like, what is the easiest way for me to win matches? And the more proficient he gets on serve, the more free points he wins, which he has gotten better at. And just working in the serve and volley in a consistent way, not a sporadic way. I mean, it's a really fun quarterfinal set of matches. And again, you look via our friends at Tennis Abstract, their singles forecast, which of course provides the percentages uh, for these players, an ELO-based percentage outcome of who you, they expect to win the matches. You look uh, for these quarterfinals. Medvedev, 79.2% favorite over Hercots, Elcaraz 81.7% over Kesmanovic. Sinner, 93% over Sarandolo, who we haven't talked about. But, uh, but for the record, for the past 18 months, we've been Francisco over Juan Manuel in terms of upside on this show I suppose if you have a strong thought feel free to include it Zverev 71% of a rude you look overall it goes Medvedev 34-1 Zirev 23-7 Alcaraz 17-9 Sinner 17-2% uh, chances of winning who you got this weekend
2: we got to take sinner out because breaking news he also retired down 4-1 in the quarter he? final just serendulo so wow Ooh. <laughs> glad i didn't go that hard for yannick sinner over carlos yeah. Alvarez. Well, although i did call it. him the tortoise and the hare so i yeah, guess it's no. gonna just be a little bit slower i mean it's a
1: retirement <laughs> injury i don't th- i think the whole segment stands i don't think anyone's gonna hear that and smite us for the
2: take so- it's a rough, rough ending to that Aesops fable for a Patriotic Sinner. But um yeah, so I don't know how that recalibrates all that little pie chart that you were going through. I mean, my heart breaks for poor Hubi Hercotz, who has not even gotten to play a stadium match yet. He's the defending champion. I mean, it's really you talk about this new, you know, this equal prize money debate, which I find very hilarious, that's coming up during a month when both Cameron Nori and Hubert Herkaz, the, you know, the defending champions of these big men's events are not getting put on the big stadiums. They're not getting called in for big press conferences. Conversely, you know, Paula Badosa was on stadium court, basically her entire Indian Wells campaign. I'm p- quite certain Ash Barty would have been on stadium court had she played. Um, mm-hmm. So an interesting argument for the WTA-ification of the ATP. It seems like maybe <laughs> it really is becoming, maybe it's the ATP-ification of the WTA. We might be wanting to have that conversation, but I am very much looking forward to that quarterfinal between her cuts and Medvedev assuming that it happens and and goes to completion because it is the match that will determine whether Medvedev gets back to number one over Novak Djokovic in Miami. And it is the the renewal of quite a fascinating rivalry. I mean, they played some really great matches over the last year or so. Um, but again, yeah, that serve from her cast is really clutch. He hit 24 aces to beat Aslan Karatsev um in a very tough third-round match that got him over the finish line there. Uh, long medical timeout from Karatsev in the last game. And Herkatz wasn't bothered at all, hit a few aces, if service winners, got over the finish line and then beat Lloyd Harris, a really good win in the fourth round. And now it's, you know, has a crack at Medvedev and, you know, very much in the hunt to defend his title. So I think looking at based on experience and momentum, I think the winner of that match is going to have a lot of, um, a lot of gas heading into that finals weekend
1: no it, again it's going to be an interesting certainly weekend of play uh in miami and of course we will continue to monitor it here on this show i do want to switch gears and talk about the women before i let you go that said when you look at the multiple injuries we've seen and there have been a lot of withdrawals here this week yeah. into the event illness
2: injury yeah,
1: illness and injury and What's the cause? I mean, I know we're playing a game of Speculation Jones here, but is it just four weeks of this level of tennis is really hard to sustain? Is it we're just at that point of the season? It does feel like obviously there's some, I mean, we don't have any confirmed COVID cases. So I hate the idea of spreading this idea that there's COVID going around because we don't have any confirmation. But certainly it's the flu season and changing of seasons. And that's always going to be icky. Um, I mean, what do you attribute this to?
2: I mean, it is maybe a bit heartening that there have been a lot of viral illnesses happening in Miami and yeah. no one has assumed that it's COVID. Maybe yeah. we're, maybe we're finally getting on the other end of this pandemic after all. But I mean, it, there is something to be said about this being the first sunshine swing in two yeah. years. I mean, this is the quickest turnaround that involves a multiple hour flight. I mean, even if you compare it to Europe, it's not quite the same going from California to Florida as it is going from, you know, Monte Carlo to Madrid to Rome. I mean, those are for many players, I'm sure they, they might even drive or take the train. I mean, it's just not the same in terms of a commute. And so with that said, yeah, I think it's just, and certainly based on the way the conditions in Indian Wells have evolved over the years, we're certainly seeing very disparate conditions between those two tournaments, making it that much tougher for players to play well at both tournaments. And I think everyone's feeling a bit run down, which is, you know, right on schedule for there to be, you know, kind of a comfortable couple of weeks for players to regroup. Should they, should they, um, have the desire to do so and you know you know come back stronger and healthier for the clay court season so i think you know and other players are kind of just bounding into form i mean to foreshadow the discussion we've had about belinda benchett, who has been having all kinds of issues with long long haul COVID over the last few months and finally seemingly shaking it off to make the semifinals here in the women's draw but um yeah a little disappointing that the um there's been so many retirements uh in miami
1: yeah it's certainly something again to um I think it's infected both the men's and the women's side. It, it's always disappointing. Now, it does feel like the men's field has held a little stronger, although certainly you're missing a big headliner with Rafael Nadal out, although that's fractured ribs and something completely different. But, no, yeah, I mean, Berrettini out with a hand injury as well. You saw that accumulate. Just Nixon and bruises now, picking up for everyone. And to your point, the calendar is essentially back. Like, we are what? now back.
2: But speaking of the calendar, we also don't know how the WTA calendar is going to evolve. And based on the way sort of by accident. We learned yesterday, no
1: China, right?
2: Correct. I mean, they're they're taking bids, it would seem, as we speak, in terms of where the WTA finals is going to land. And, you know, based on through happenstance, and there certainly wasn't a China ban last fall, but the way that we were able to navigate as a WTA viewer from Indian Wells to Guadalajara was quite an interesting fall swing and maybe there is an argument to be made that the sunshine swing is a bit you know onerous on fans mm-hmm. and players to have to go from one extreme tournament to the next in back-to-back weeks maybe there is something to be said about that moving one to the fall if in fact the the wta finals finds itself in a location that would be um conducive to making that kind of shift i'm sure there would be all kinds of hand wringing and and debate having over that subject by even bringing it up but it's something something to consider we're, we're in the business of considering here that's on my what we podcast that's yeah I was gonna say that's what
1: we do best on your show is thoughtful consideration <laughs> I would disagree I would say again I think the Sunshine Swing is delightful I really enjoy the back to back events I know it's a slog and I like the idea of there being a big events at the end of the year as well but this focus you know again obviously i'm american biased because it's all on my time zones it's just a very it's a very fun two-week stretch to get to see all these top players in the world compete back to back and the survivors of the sunshine swing i think you feel that much more strongly about them coming out of it because of how difficult the task it is to accomplish to have success in both events with that said let's switch gears now talk about the men's here uh our men's excuse me talk about the women's <laughs> action here uh as well and you know again I know we've talked about a lot of these storylines already as we've looked at Miami and when we've had you on the show and we talked about the massive upsets that occurred early in the tournaments and I think we noted it in the moment but certainly now as we approach the semi-finals we can say definitively Naomi Osaka's having one of those events and when you look for her whether it was you know the straight sets over Sharma, Kerber, Risk, Collins Closest set she's played this week is six four, and she served better and better with every passing match. She was lights out on serve yesterday against Danielle Collins, and if Danielle Collins didn't have a look at a second serve return, or if Danielle Collins didn't land a perfectly placed first serve, she was just losing the point. Like Osaka was in a place physically where she was tracking down extra balls getting Colin stretched the moment Colin sat something in the middle third or short in the court Osaka was in attack mode the down the lines were working the inside out were working she was finding forehands and you know holding until the last moment so you don't know where that ball is going to go as well as she ever does she's just freaking locked in right now like she's just playing excellent David all week long
2: yeah, like I said it's a, it's a wonder what a week of therapy will do for a player. I mean, she's just back to sort of just her light, bright, airy best, you know, embracing challenge and it's really quite heartening to see again compared to where she was this time last year. I think she even said it meant more to her to be making the quarterfinals this year than it was last year because she was just under so much stress with the win streak and she was seeming like, you know, the obvious pick to reclaim number 1 from Ash Barty and things really took a turn um in a major way when she did lose in Miami to Sakari. I think it was 0 and 4 4-0, and 0. it was just a, it was a rough way to end that streak. And then she goes into clay feeling sort of, you know, beaten down and we all remember what happened after that. So I think, you know, it's just, this is, it's a great one for her. I mean, I think she's just feel kind of in, re, has rediscovered her sense of self here. And I think that's the best possible news because she has been so lost for the last few months. And again, this is, you know, fortuitous timing both for her and for us as viewers because we just lost our world number one and seemingly, you know, the one of the players who we thought was very much should be in contention to be challenging Barty is now playing really phenomenal tennis again. And so I think that's, um, that's only something to celebrate. And then, you know, again, going back to that top half of the draw, we certainly could have gotten a very crazy semifinal based on who was dropping out in the early rounds, based on who pulled out. And yet we managed to get arguably a better, more marquee top half than we're going to have gotten in the bottom half now that Bedosa is out obviously no no disrespect to Pagula but if you look at a Benchich Osaka matchup I mean that's sort of shaping up to be that marquee rivalry that we've been waiting for in women's tennis you know an opportunity for Osaka to get a first tour level win over Benchich who beat her three times in 2019 Uh, Osaka hilariously did not seem to remember that 2019 U.S. Open match that she lost to lose her uh, her title defense that year but I mean um, great for Ben and great for Naomi. Two really great stories and and salvaged what could have been a sort of a, a calamitous uh, top half.
1: I know we've done this before, but since the Olympics, just one more time, the Osaka oh, no. losses. Drusova, who goes on to win the silver medal at the Olympics. That's who knocks out Osaka. (laughs) Yeah. Fernandez, finalist U.S. Open. Teichman, finalist Cincinnati. Anisimova lights out at the Australian Open, and that's a match 7-6 in the third. Could have gone either way. The Matova loss at Indian Wells was what it was. But again, context being key, Osaka is still holding serve over 80% of the time over these past 52 weeks of play. Two players you can say that about in the women's game. Osaka... And now retired Ashley Barty. She has an elite skill that now no one else on the tour, I'm sorry, can match to that extent. That was the whole foundation of Serena Williams Power Tennis Country Club was to find a way to tie in the dominance of Serena and Osaka and serve and what they have. You know, that's different from everyone else. And it kind of spiraled from there. The point being, Naomi's been excellent, but you mention it. I am such a Belinda Bencic fan, and this is another one of those takes I'll die on because, as a scholar of Colette Lewis, and
2: Zverev, you're really in the you're in the rough club, right? Now. Well, Bencic, <laughs> it's, you know
1: what it is? It's the night that's like just tells you when I was reading Colette Lewis, right? Because if you studied at the Church of Zoology, um, Zoo Tennisology, I should say, um, you were following them as juniors, and they were two of the most dominant juniors of their generations. Belinda Bencic, who's been injured, you know, Shout multiple. Out to Colette Lewis, th- yeah. Bookmark. Oh, the card. goat. I <laughs> I love Colette. Um, you know, again, these were two of the best juniors of their generation, two of the best juniors we've seen in recent memory. And, you know, for Belinda Bencic, who got off to such a hot start in her career but has dealt with so many different injury problems. A, when was the last time we saw Belinda Bencic play more than 50 matches in a 52-week stretch? It's been a couple of years. She's 39-19, and 19. In her last 52 weeks, and, you know, again, if you want to go all the way back to the start of the grass court season when she makes that final in Berlin and, you know, really begins to see her play take off, you look for Belinda Bencic in that stretch of time, I mean, again, I don't know what more you can ask for, Bencic, who has gone uh, in total 34-14. and 14. During that stretch, and Olympic gold medal and U.S. Open quarterfinals where she loses to Raducanu 3-4, and four. but I think of everyone Raducanu played, Bencic came closest to earning the victory. I mean, yeah, if she plays Ludmilla Samsonova, that's a bad matchup for her, and there are some weeks when, you know, again... Ben, because Bencic is not the best mover, because her game is very one-dimensional, front foot, I'm going to hit through you. I'm going to take balls on the rise. I think she has the best swinging volleys in women's tennis, which is a very narrow category. But her ability to hit her ground strokes out of the air, that's how she takes time away from you and makes up for her, her lack of elite mobility, fluidity, for lack of a better term. Um, and she strikes the ball. You know, it's funny because... When I first saw your Pagula tweet, we go full circle here, which we were talking about at the beginning. When I first saw your Pagula tweet, I thought I saw you say she's one, of, she's the best ball striker of her generation. And I was going to be like, David.
0: No. Da- oh, my yeah. God. Yes. I was going to be like,
1: David, you're going to throw that red meat out there right now and not at least include some sort of Housewives gif onto it to make, let us know that you're kidding. I was like, that was too much. And then I read back and you said she's another one of this generation. I was like, oh, OK, that makes more sense.
2: I mean, Benchic. I already made, like, Katie Spellman upset because I yeah. implied that Iga Fantek was going to be Petra Kvitova. So, I mean, yeah. like, I'm just, I'm batting 1,000 today.
1: Well, I'll say this. Bencic is as good of a ball striker as I see out there. Like, she hits just such a pure ball, and I'm still a believer. I think there's a slam run in her, and obviously we've seen her get to U.S. Open semifinal, and we've seen her make major runs at 1,000-level events. I think there's a Grand Slam title in her. Like, just, when she strikes the ball purely, she can hit through anyone. And she just gets in one of those modes where, you know, again, main character energy, she's just kind of like, I don't, it's not quite that, it's more like, I don't really care what you do. I'm going to do my thing, and I'm going to beat you.
2: You're a bell (laughs) lever? Is that what you're saying? I mean, do you uh, want me to
1: cut that? I will. I, I
2: was certainly no. Please make it the entire podcast. On a loop. I think um, you know what I think I mean, Now it's the title. Do you barely? <laughs> I think. I mean, listen. I think I was a bigger believer in Ventich before I witnessed what happened to her at the U.S. Open against Raducanu. I, think, I talk about next next gen bias. I mean, I think the fact that Ventich did not get that match done, and I think that was really the one that Raducanu was, as you said, most in danger of losing, and then really kind of fell away, kind of got despondent and cranky on court, which is you know very reminiscent of her spiritual ancestor, Martina Hingis, uh, in, in many ways. But I think that that was sort of a, a, a tough one to recover from, especially in light of how well she did play at the Olympics in very tough conditions against a very tough opponent, tricky opponent in the final. I mean, she's someone who can run hot but she's also someone who can get flat seemingly out of nowhere in big matches. And so I think that'll always kind of be her hindrance and is not, as you said, the best mover, not necessarily the most natural returner. I think didn't Sharapova hit like, I don't know, 16 aces against Bencic famously that year at the Australian Open in 2016. I mean, I think it's just with Bencic, it's it's a little bit different than a Naomi Osaka who can seemingly post good results as you as you've referenced in the last year despite maybe only showing up with like a c-plus game and maybe you know even with at a c-plus level showing up and and serving holding serve 80 percent of the time Benchich doesn't always have that luxury I think that she's going to be one who's going to need to run hot as she seemingly is here but in at a grand slam and not let something you know distract her and sort of take her off the boil in the way that it happened in New York because looking back on that that was if you're if you're asking me who of Benchich Pliskova, Sabalenka, Svitolina who's maybe most disappointed that they didn't win that slam, Bencic is certainly up there.
1: I would say the 2019 Slam, when she played so well that season and going into that semifinal, it just felt like that was her moment where this was the opportunity. Just for Andrescu to take that Slam title over Bencic? I mean, you're giving me a face, David.
2: I mean, the summer of Bianca Andreescu is alive. And I mean, I have a lot of friends I know, from if, Tennis Canada, if, so if that might be why. If memory serves me but...
1: correct, didn't Bencic win Indian Wells that year or win in the Middle East and make the final of Indian Wells that year?
2: She won Dubai, which I was before, yeah. and she, she won made the semis they, in Indian Wells. Yeah, where she lost yeah. to
1: Andrescu maybe. Or 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 Kerber. Either way, point being I can't remember. Yeah, but the yeah. point being, yes, I agree, Andrescu was the headliner that summer but it felt like the bet okay what it really felt like is again Benchich was maybe her biggest opponent or it felt like you had these two breakthroughs happening simultaneously much like we have next gen versus next gen 2.0 right now it felt like a little tug of war in that moment where Benchich is like no, no 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 i am healthy now i am back on top this is my moment and andrescu kind of took that away from her
2: yeah i mean i guess in the absence of andrescu that summer i certainly but I think, I just remember that semifinal and just feeling like it wasn't in doubt that Andrescu yeah. was, was just riding such a wave that, you know, Benchich just kind of gotten it back because she, as you mentioned, sure. she had a really good start to the season and then was not as um, mm. prevalent in that summer leading into the US Open. But I think, yeah, that's, certainly would love to see that that rematch. That's yeah. another one that we're, I hope, I'm we're also, getting Benchich Osaka again. So hopefully we get so, Benchich Andrescu. And you
1: alluded to it. Benchic Osaka, because I think they're both 97s. That's one of those rivalries, one of those what-ifs. You're like, if, if Bencic is perennially healthy, never screws up her knee, and is always in the mix and is able to just sustain the top 10, 20 ranking from the first time she got it, there would have been some Bencic-Osaka clashes, and certainly those are two players who know each other well from their junior days and you know very early on were compared to one another. That's one of those what-if rivalries I'm sad we didn't get more of
2: never too late but it's true yeah, i mean with benchich i mean we're, we're we're burgeoning on a decade back yeah. to her junior days of, of being aware of her i mean certainly mm-hmm. osaka is close you know that 2014 stanford breakout um results i think yeah her one win over benchage was when you know osaka was sort of this unknown commodity and benchage was a hot shot junior i mean I th- osaka mentioned it in press last night that she she feels she used to really put a lot of pressure on herself when she would play players who are her age or younger and and Seemingly, you know, shook that off when she beat when she lost to Coco at the Australian Open 2020. But obviously, as you mentioned, had you know, had some difficulties against people like Layla Fernandez at the US Open last year. So maybe not totally dead and gone, those those self doubts. But I think, um, based on the way Osaka's been playing, this is as good an opportunity as any for her to get that first win on a tour tour level match.
1: No, it's it's going to be a really fun one, certainly. And then Iga Kavitova coming tonight, obviously, the winner now is going to play Pagula. Any Kvitova thoughts? I mean, she's. It's gotten so much better since the start of the season. Clearly, I, I mean, again, my my argument will always be: if you're going to make the case, why is the Kvitova window for winning a Grand Slam not closed? It's particularly open again with the retirement of Barty, because like, do we know any of these women's players are good on grass courts? Like, we just haven't seen enough of them play a bigger a big enough sample size of matches. We know when is firing all cylinders healthy, like you felt like going into last year's French Open before she injured her ankle, she was playing so freaking well and just to see her make a run in Roland Garros or in London didn't feel out of the question. Obviously, the start to the season was atrocious, but she's picking up her level. Big challenge tonight against Iga. Where are you with Petra, David?
2: Well, if Katie's listening, I have utmost confidence in Petra's ability to, to pick up. It's this your subject. show. But I think. Yeah. I, it's uh, my, my show, my rules. But I think um, Petra, whether it's Petra, whether it's Osaka or Benchich, I think um, it goes to show what sort of being a talk about a pure, even a Pegula, you know, what a pure natural ball striker, what that does for your ability to kind of build yourself from scratch. I mean, it's so difficult to restart a career and. We're seeing kind of, we've seen Bencic do it before. We're seeing Osaka do it here. We've seen Pagula do it, you know, after years of injury. And now we're seeing Kvitova after really, you know, a doldrums start to this season. You know, just because she is such a, at her best, she is such a clean striker of the ball. You know, when she is clicking, anything is possible. She's healthy. So it's certainly heartening to see um her pull together a result like this and we'll certainly have opportunities but i think ego will be a really tough opponent just because of the way that her ball matches up against um petra's you know that that heavy top spin is going to be it's going to be a rough one for her. i mean certainly petra had her struggles against ash so i would imagine that it's not going to be easy for her to take on ega tonight that said yeah i mean if she's able to to stay healthy and take heart from this results and you know not overplay on clay and find herself injured before grass i mean we have certainly been waiting for that you know next that third wimbledon title if not something better from or even greater from from kvitova so i mean you can never rule her out which is which is great to hear
1: better career kvitova or kerber
2: i mean if you ask me who i think people will remember it would be petra yeah but statistically i think I, obviously it's Kerber and I think they'll both get inducted into the Hall of Fame so it kind of doesn't matter. I th- and I also think that Petra will give the better speech. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, if ask me about the things that matter. I mean, I think Petra is just such an indelible, it's like that Mary Pierce sort of, you know, the way that she strikes the ball is, is deeply unforgettable. So I think no matter what, you know, it doesn't really matter at this point. It's all gravy for Petra at this point.
1: And I say it all the time, there's not a single tennis fan coach player out there who when they hear the phrase big lefty is not going to be intrigued where you're just going to be like, huh, (laughs) I want to hear more. Like, tell me more (laughs) about this lefty who can hit big. Um, And that's Petra Kvitova. Yeah, I mean, I, I think she's played better. I think this is another match Iga now I mean, Iga's just been on the freaking warpath, and she is the world number one. She's established herself. It's pretty definitive. You gave me a great take uh, that Iga's just the new Ashley Barty before the podcast began. That was outstanding. Third, in terms of the takes you've given, obviously number one is going to be Alcaraz versus Sinner, a.k.a. Hare versus the Tortoise. Um, I mean, with that said, any final thoughts as we look at Miami as this final weekend unfolds?
2: No, just that leading up to this point, Ega is who she told us that she was and was yeah. working on being, and so I think you know kudos to her for anyone who who might have doubted her. Not pointing at myself right now, but I think yeah. that um, really great. You know, she's she 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 had the the benefit, I think, in many ways of you know having sort of a an early opportunity. She didn't have to wait six matches to play for number one. She had this, you know opening round match you win it you're number one and everything else is just a whew, and i think that that sort of release is what we're seeing kind of play out it's kind of probably making up for what any fatigue she might be feeling from what's been a really um exhausting month and a half of tennis and her dating back to doha so i think you know she's probably one who's going to really enjoy the break and turn around for clay and again going back to that that top three that we're looking at between Svantek, uh, bedosa krechkova even sakari a, sem- a semi at roland garros i mean the WTA is suddenly in really good shape, and it's certainly not how I felt after Australia.
1: They are who we thought they were. Do you know which football coach gave that quote?
2: The only football from thing from the
1: commercial.
2: Unless it's Jessica Pagula, I don't know anything <laughs> about football. And also, Robert Stack was my favorite Unsolved Mysteries host. I never watched the Dennis Farina episodes, so that's that's all I got.
1: Because <sighs> you're a New York, you're a New Yorker through and through, obviously. You never were a Yankee guy. You never had a Yankee moment, even in like the late '90s.
2: My dad was an Atlanta Braves fan. Oh, He's not dude. from Georgia, he so might have had a moment
1: in, there. Sure, Greg. Mad- I tell my dad, I so I when I'm ever messing around with him, I call him Post Prime Greg Maddox. And, not
2: Greg Matt. Oh, Greg yeah, Maddox. I, I know that name. Yeah. So Greg <laughs> Maddox,
1: who notoriously threw like '92 to '94, but could just paint the strike zone with ease. Well, when he turned 35, 36, that 92, 94 became like 86, 87. And you really could only turn up the 94 when he really needed it. And I tell my dad that's how he is as a father now. I'm like, look, you still hit the strike zone every time. Like you're just 86 now down the plate. And when you really need to, you turn it up to 94. I'm like, this is a compliment. I'm like, Greg Maddox is arguably the best pitcher in baseball history. I'm just saying in terms of where you're at in your parentage, you're post-prime Greg Maddox. I deserve this for bringing up bigger skating. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a, by the way, I don't think that's mean. I think I like God willing to be compared. If I called you a post prime Roger Federer, would you be a, cause that's like the equivalent
2: I mean, I don't know. For someone who, who, is, who remembers that famous Martina Hingis quote uh, that Yana Navatna, rest her soul, was too old and slow. I don't know if I, I would like to be post-prime anything. I'd rather just <laughs> be prime. <laughs>
1: yeah, fine. Tail end of the prime, Greg Maddox. There we go. That's a little nicer. No. Um, anyways, with all that said, Tennis.com, what you got for us this weekend?
2: I will be covering the women's final and that's okay. what you can expect from me and I will be off on Friday because God knows I need it <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> a yeah. long four weeks of
1: tennis are you <laughs> withdrawing 4-1 down on Friday you're just like I'm I'm calling it yeah I'm good this I'm just is... I'm
2: giving a straight walkover. I'm not, yeah. I'm not even pretending that I'm going to be that I'm just showing your prize
1: money take it I'm good alright <laughs> with that said as always a huge thank you to David for taking the time to join us of course a huge thank you to our friends at Tennis Point for their support of this show you all know the deal for the latest and greatest in tennis equipment tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15, of course. If you're looking for updates, all things, pro tennis, college tennis, junior world, we've got you covered. Head on over to our website, crackrackets.com. like, rate, subscribe for you. This show, the Great Shot Podcast, Cracked Interviews Podcast, and our YouTube channel to ensure you don't miss out on any of our content. Of course, the immediate updates, Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, at Cracked Rackets. You want to message me, I'm at AL Gruskin. David's at NNS. Right? DKT double There it is. DKT
2: double yes. There it is.
1: It was coming out eventually. Uh, DKT double NS to learn more, but you already follow David. With all of that said, for the fantastic David Kane, our super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point. From all of us here at both Cracked Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network, I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. David, what do we tell our people?
2: And that's my break.
1: <laughs> we will see you all next time. Thank you as always, my friend.
2: Thank you.
0: back.